You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Shawnee Carruthers, and today I'm joined by Stephanie Taylor, Director of Clinical Innovation at Presence. Stephanie has worked in education since 2002 as a special education teacher slash case manager, a school psychologist, and director of special education. She is currently working in the private sector to help schools gain access to needed related services through teletherapy. Stephanie, thanks so much for being here and joining me today. I'm very excited to be here. So thank you. I'm super excited to have you. And this is, I wouldn't say a hot topic, but but hot, it means like it's just something that we're only talking about for a moment. But in reality, this is something that we need to continuously talk about because it's such an important issue. Um, And so as we think about teletherapy, as we think about mental health, the first thing I want to discuss is that mental health isn't always noticeable. Um, And we see that everywhere. Um, But specifically, as we talk about in schools, it's not something that people can always easily identify. So how can we as parents and educators and friends do a better job of noticing? And are there any key stakeholders that I'm forgetting? Uh, so a couple of things. I, I do want to start out by saying that um, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty passionate about really reframing or I guess framing the fact that, yes, we need to put a real a microscope on mental health needs right now, and we need to talk about them separately and kind of elevate their visibility in the world. But I, I think there's actually a step before that, that is the the primary way that we address these, these everyone's needs, which is we start remembering that mental health is just part of health. Um, there are so many invisible diseases. Uh, there are so many physical ailments that you don't know when people walk around and you see them in public, like you don't know that they're going through something. You don't know that they, um, you know, have uh, some other physical ailment and mental health is no different. Meaning it's all invisible um, or it's often invisible. The main difference is that people accept and widely are aware that a, a physical problem is somehow out of my control, right? It's, uh, it happened to me and it's nothing I can do about it. So there's no shame attached with it. And we have, as everyone knows, this is nothing new. We talk about the stigma of mental health all the time, but there still is just this idea that mental health is different. It's different than physical health. And it's something that, um, although there are so many people now who are talking more and more about, um, you know, the struggles they're going through, and it really is sort of like desensitizing us all to this idea, but there is this underlying portion still to this day where we should somehow be ashamed, or we should somehow feel that we could have prevented it, or we could do something about it. And and so I do want to just acknowledge that and take a step back to say that, the, the more we can do to, I, I guess it's my goal, it's my hope one day that we stop having to call out mental health as a separate thing. And we can just talk about health in general. And it's just understood and acknowledged or uh, it's known that the mental health is included in that overall definition of health, because then we'll have our general practitioners, we'll have, you know, all those, those bases of uh, or foundational pieces of healthcare will also include mental health. And the way that I feel like that really impacts the education space is, you know, when we talk about uh, academics, for example, or really what most people think is the main function of a school, it is to teach, you know, academic subjects. That's what the main uh, priority is. And because of that, we've got 
um, you know, the main courses, main classes, the general education that teachers teach. And then we've got uh, built-in ways of what if a student's struggling and they're not being able to read at grade level, then what do we do with them? And then if they still struggle, then what do we do? And there is like an escalation path built into how schools function when it comes to academics. But there's not always that same um, foundation when it comes to mental health skills. There's often an escalation path, but there's almost a... um, invisible forgetfulness about the fact that there has to be some type of foundational um, service provided for mental health as well, just like we're doing for all the academic subjects. And I think that if talking to, you know, all those stakeholders, so teachers, uh, administrators, parents, really any, um, I would say, invested community member too, because sometimes it's actually like coaches and sometimes it's um, paraprofessionals, it's everyone that really interacts with that school system, is remembering that there has to be some universal acceptance that mental health needs to be part of an overall child's experience in the school setting and not something that's called out in special little segments once there's already an issue. So I think one of the things you were mentioning was just like, when it comes to academics, in addition to the escalation path, there are like these tiered interventions that aren't necessarily as available when we're talking talking in this mental health space. But there has to be a culture of learning for all involved because you're correct that they, they students interact with so many people each day, from the bus driver to the um, janitorial staff to the coaches to to the lunchroom people, um, everyone. So. How do you go about building um, a culture of support in the school? So it's not just, oh, it's embedded in the curriculum. But like we said, since they interact with so many, it has to be a culture of understanding. How do you build that? So um, I think it's important to acknowledge what you just said, which is that research shows that it's actually not super effective to be able to um, set aside little snippets of time to like, explicitly teach social emotional skills or um, mental health skills or any, whatever, whatever you want to call them in that broader context, that it's, that feels very arbitrary and it's hard for kids to generalize that. Right. So even if I can give you an answer in the middle of this like lesson, like let's say you're giving me a lesson on social skills and then um, it's hard for me to take that and like go out and generalize that to an actual situation with my peers. And it seemed it's more effective to actually just support these more like authentic interactions with all adults. And the way to go about that is to really uh, support the adults in saying, and like you said, this is everybody, this is not just teachers, this is everybody in a school system, to have some professional development for them to be able to say, hey, this is kind of how, you know, if a opportunity presents itself, this is how you can catch that moment. These are some of the ways in which you can also show your own vulnerability or the things you've been through and give examples of your resiliency, because that's really what kids need. They need to know they're not alone. They need to see examples of resiliency, and they need to know that um, anything that happened to them, that there is a trauma-informed approach. And that's whether that's, I mean, trauma can be described pretty broadly, meaning trauma is not always um, uh, you know, very specific and horrific. There are a lot of different ways to define trauma. And most most of us define them by whatever we have experience with, right? So whatever is the most 
traumatic thing that's happened to us at that time, not comparison, comparing to anybody else or what anybody else has gone through. So I think there's a level of just being able to talk to other human beings and to adults and for kids to be able to see that this is, this is okay. Like, right. We're all going through life's experiences. We're all dealing with some of the same things and we're all finding our way. And, and the power of that example is, is pretty um, amazing and remarkable in what it does for children and their own thoughts about their own resiliency. And then you've also got to think about just like for academics, for those kids that don't respond to that foundational level um, and also maybe are, don't have the same level of support from other adults um, outside of the school setting as, as other children as well. Sometimes you have students that need a little bit more. And this is where we get into those tiered interventions. And I feel like the thing that's super important to recognize here is that I would never ask for, um, like, say, like you mentioned the janitorial staff, right? I would never turn around and ask them. So, hey, we need somebody to come in and teach calculus today. Can you jump in and do that for us, please? Um, because that's not what their training is, right? That's not their expertise. And so just in that same vein, asking teachers to become mental health professionals, n- no amount of professional development is going to make them be professional or mental health professionals, nor should they. And I think that's something that is super important for administrators, especially to hear, is that if we're really wanting to do what is going to be most effective for children, letting teachers be the experts in, in their subjects like they are, but again, showing that they are human beings, having that those times for um, open and honest communication and examples of resiliency with children. But when there are students who need extra that are either um, struggling, you can see maybe their parent has recommended, maybe they're on your radar from a a teacher that says, you know what, they've, they've been acting a little differently than, than usual. Um, that is when it's time to really look at what do you have in their system to be able to accommodate or meet the needs of those children and not have it be somebody who is also responsible for every other thing that's going on in that classroom. It's just holistically um, unreasonable. Yeah, no. So building that foundation is, is critical. And then, like you said, just teaching like, the conversation pieces, the how to have empathy toward, toward others. So just basically the, the skills that you would extend to anyone um, as an adult in that building um, is, is really necessary. And so you kind of describe what mental health looks like today in like the first part of the conversation and then what it looks like sometimes in school buildings. But um, what should it look like in the future? I think... Um... Although, sorry, I, I actually do want to jump back really fast for one thing. How to help teachers recognize or how to help people recognize when, when children need something extra. So I, I want to just jump on that for one second. Um, I think, and so going or to even go more on what I was saying about uh, really thinking about those interactions with the, the adults in the school setting can have with the children and some of those like authentic um, relationships, having developing authentic relationships, that's actually the best way to recognize when something um, is a little bit off or out of place. Um, and, and sometimes it's because a child inter- has interacted historically in one way and now it's a little bit different. But also sometimes it's that you realize that there are some children who um, are always against interaction, right? They're, they're not ever 
uh, wanting to engage and they always seem withdrawn. And some of those things, because mental health can display itself as nothing at all, right? You don't even notice. They seem happy. They seem great. They seem like nothing's wrong. It can also be total withdrawal. It can be, um, you know, erratic. It can be just a little bit of different. So I think that it's more about looking around at what general interaction looks like for that age group and then specifically the history of that child's interactions. Um, that's really the best way to notice when something's happening. And if you're not having gener- um, regular interactions with that student, it's really hard to know. Yeah, no, I I mean, it's just like if, you know, if you're a parent, you notice when your your child might be acting a little differently than what how they might typically act. And so that's when you kind of start some intervention, start to dig a little bit deeper. And the same is true with any with students in terms of building those authentic relationships. And so as we going back to the other question about moving mental health forward, um, what what are what are the innovative things that are happening out there? What does the future look like? What should it look like? The first thing is that not only do we have to like really focus on these um, authentic interactions and building relationships, which I'm talking about, but there does need to be um, a little bit more of a focus on like a quantifiable science of mental health. Like I said, just like we have general checkups at you know the doctor every year, and they are looking at very specific indicators. Uh, the same can be said for mental health. So one of the things that schools and, and a lot of schools are putting this in place, but this really needs to become standard going forward, which is universal screeners for um, mental health issues. So it's uh, literally they're typically questionnaires and they go out to uh, all the teachers in the school, to the parents as well. And then depending on the age of the child, they might do a self um, um, self screener. Right. They are a questionnaire and that also can just put it towards the science. So um, most of those screeners are normed. So meaning like, of course, there is a national population of like, here's what's the typical range and here's a little below or above. And so being able to have something that is standard that way, that also helps with the longitudinal, right? Is this, is this child different than they were or for those children who maybe seem like nothing's happening, like they have no no warning signs of being at risk at all, a lot of times when you actually sit down and ask individual questions that are on those questionnaires, then then the information comes to light. And you're like, oh, you know what? I never noticed that. But also some of the time the children will self-identify through those questionnaires as well. And you've given them the opportunity to give that information, which is essential. Um, in a a very non-threatening way of filling out a piece of paper. So the first thing is universal screening and benchmarking. So benchmarking, that screening needs to be redone three times a year at minimum to be able to track um, over time. Second is really, again, I, this is, this is now, I'm going to get on to a little like philosophical, you know, high horse for one second, but I feel like schools are in a really, really hard place. And by that, I mean, they are responsible for children's education, right? So think about the way that schools are judged. They're judged on testing scores. They're judged on graduation rates and things that are very specifically tied to academics and to credits. But on the other hand, they also are the one place that most children will go, right? Most children attend school. And so if you really want to provide a service to schools or to children, 
schools is a good place to do it because that's where you can get them. But schools are not given the funding nor the preparation to be able to become uh, more holistic providers of mental health. In, in my world, we call this like the educational model versus the medical model, right? If I have a, an ailment and I go to the doctor, they're going to go, yep, you have an ailment, you, you can get treat, you know, you can get whatever you need. But if I, um, on, in the school end, everything has to be very much tied to academic performance to be able to um, really, I guess, meet the needs of a lot or meet the requirements of some of the funding sources. And so schools are kind of like, we know we need to do more. We know that we could be really instrumental in providing this to, to students, but we're not doctors. We're not a medical model. We are an educational model and we don't have the same funding, the same um, ease of treatment, um, like determinations of treatment that you would if you go to a doctor. So I think that in the future, the most important thing that we can do is sort of get rid of that idea of like that bilateral thinking that it's, it's got to be a uh, medical model or an educational model. And we can't do, we got to have to keep them separate. I think it's really setting up schools to be in a position where not only funding wise and resources wise, but just um, their whole approach, I guess, just really being bought into the idea that schools can be the one-stop shop for all of children's needs that they, we need them to be if we approach it correctly and, and set it up the way that it needs to be set up. So as you think about that one-stop shop, because I, I agree, um, you definitely have to have the right resources in place. And I appreciate the fact that more schools are doing, you said like the universal screenings um, for all the, all the indicators for lots of things. So not just like vision and hearing, but also thinking, like you said, just very holistically about health. And it's great that students are being a part of that conversation because we often talk about students co-authoring their learning um, and like creating these journeys and these pathways. But we don't always talk about like kind of their health as a part of that, because you're right. They're all, they're all kind of wrapped together, the school and health component. Um, but when students do identify maybe um, some challenges they may, might be having, our teachers are able to identify. And because this is all happening in this one place, it can be very easy sometimes for students to feel like very ostracized or different um, because you know, they're saying, I'm struggling with this, and I'm identifying this at my school, and now this place where I have to be, and I'm here for this, you know, amount of time, now doesn't feel like a safe space for me anymore. Um, so how can students be assessed for these challenges, whether they identify it or not, or someone else does, without feeling so ostracized or different? I this is one of the places where I actually feel that teletherapy plays a huge role. And so, well, let me take a step back. Doing a screening usually happens on a computer. So a lot of the screeners now, everybody, like I said, everybody in the whole school goes and sits down in front of their computer. Um, they answer a couple of questions and then that information goes and their mind goes out into the ether from there. Right. But uh, as we get that information and say, okay, now what do we want to do for this? What are the, you know, what are the steps we want? Who are the children that are doing all right and, and are meeting the, their um, emotional benchmarks? And then who are the ones that maybe need a little extra? And 
even though, again, we've all got to work on getting rid of the, again, stigma that still exists around mental health. I think the more important thing right this moment is just making sure that students get the services they need and that they will engage in them in the way that they need to, because that's the other part. Even if I, even if you put them with somebody like a, a counselor or a psychologist, if they don't actively participate because of the reasons that you've mentioned, it, it might as well not be happening. And so in, in teletherapy, there's a, a couple things I feel like are really, really important here. Number one, nobody sees them going into the counseling office. Nobody sees them talking to a known mental professional. They will go to a room with a computer. That's basically what happens. And it it's different. Also, that child usually will engage a little bit more because they don't know that person, which seems counterintuitive, but it's actually really effective because um, they're not going to see them in the hall later. They're not going to say hi to them at lunch. It's not anybody who knows their parents. It's not anybody who, um, you know, I guess knows their older brother necessarily. So there's that comfort of anonymity, which even the youngest children respond to now. And then there's also the ability to have some flexibility. So if I, most schools have one singular counselor and maybe one singular school psychologist, and sometimes it's not even a dedicated, like, um, you know, what's very common is like, as a school psychologist, like I had three schools that I was covering. So I was just like traveling around to different schools during the day or each one day, each week. And, um, it's really hard to, to be able to like give a school what it needs with that kind of schedule. But in this case, um, let's say I am again, a, a female and I really need to speak to a female counselor, but the only person that is on site at my school is a male. That's problematic. And what is the school supposed to do about that? They're not going to hire another, you know, they're not hiring a second counselor. Like that's just not how that works. Um, and also, what if there is um, a certain time of day that is the, the best time of day to be able to like carve out some of this intervention time for students to be able to all go get some mental services at once? Again, how is one or two people supposed to see all the kids in the school at that time? And so uh, utilizing teletherapy and some of that teletherapy staffing is actually a really great way to give students the, you know, kind of like... Um, multiply your staff, if you will, in the, in the segments of time that you need it, which is a big deal. And also students feel more comfortable, so they engage more. And it's also a little bit better to find specialists if need be. So if you do have children that have like very more significant identified needs, what we call low incidence needs, um, a lot of times then teletherapy is a way to connect them with someone who is a little more specialized, where they can still get that in a school setting and from somebody that is, you know, understands what the school world is like, but it just provides a little bit of flexibility. Yeah. And I kind of mentioned pathways earlier, but as we were talking about just um, getting smart in general, I was talking about um, new pathways. One of the pillars is around the support and guidance and how, and this would fall right under that um, because like you said, schools don't always have the resources for all the support and guidance that a student may need. However, there are um, items out there like teletherapy that creates accessible, equitable access to support without a student feeling like, oh, they're just kind of calling me out and now everybody kind of knows what my challenges are. Therefore, I don't want to engage in getting the support that I know I really need. Exactly. And that's what we see uh, you know, over and over again across the nation. 
is that that lack of engagement. Right. Yeah. And parents, I know, play a center, central role or guardians and in, in providing just this all around support. So it, it is the notion of it. It takes a village to to make sure that, you know, kids or students have what they need and the adults in their lives know how to support them throughout. So I'll just kind of finish up with having you finish this line. Um, positive mental health. Finish the sentence. Positive mental health. Positive mental health is productive behavior put into action. So in the, I guess like I've been talking so much about trauma informed and resiliency here. And one of the most important things in, in that is that we don't, you know, nothing is right or wrong. Nothing is good or bad. Nothing is, you know, even positive or negative. Things are just productive or unproductive. And the more that we can look at saying, am I doing things that are productive for me, that are um, moving towards my good mental health, moving towards good interactions, moving towards meaningful life, uh, then that means I am going to have positive and good um, mental health and not worrying about judgment words, right? Like, Is that a good thing to do or bad thing to do? And it's like, no, you don't have to be mean to yourself. You don't have to say like, oh, that was horrible. I shouldn't have done that. We can just take a step back and say, was it productive or was it unproductive? And if it was unproductive, I should probably just not do it again, but that's okay. It's like no harm, no foul. So I think that's why I want, I, I choose that is because I I want people to understand that it's, it's just productive or unproductive. It's not good or bad and nobody is bad. Yeah. And it's, and it's not mental, it's just health. And you continue to to push us on that. And I really appreciate it because just what you just described, it's just what we all should be doing just for good health and our mental and physical are just components of that good health. So thank you for taking the time um, to talk to us today, Stephanie, and, um, and really um, giving us more information about how to best support all students so that they are seen and They all feel a great sense of belonging through relationships and knowledge building and a great culture of care. So we appreciate you being here today on the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart Podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 